You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 33rd Psalm. The 33rd Psalm. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke And it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, grant us grace for all the times we should especially as your elect praise you. And grant us grace to behold all the reasons we should praise you and seeing them by your, by your goodness, by your spirit, work into us faith as an expression of praise and glory to you so that we can't but sing and make melody and shout. In Christ's name I pray. 
Amen. This go-around in the Psalter, the plan is to study Psalms 31 through 42. We're in, on our way towards that destination, and when we complete, should God be gracious, when we complete it, we will have finished out book one of the Psalms. You may have noticed as you've read through the book of Psalms, some headings that say book one, book two, there are five books into which the Psalms are organized, and what this tells you is that at some point, likely some point after the return from Babylonian exile, the Psalms were edited in their final form and arranged into these books. They're, they're not in any kind of chronological order, order. There is clearly a thematic order. And so what this tells you is that each Psalm stands independently. They stand as independent entities next to one another on purpose. Psalm 33 stands next to Psalm 32, and it's no accident. Where Psalm 32 leaves off, Psalm 33 picks up. Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 33, Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Now Psalm 33 is anonymous. And this is striking in book one because it's one of only four psalms in book one that are anonymous. And as you really study the Psalter, you see that Psalms one and two form as an introductory for the entire book collection of the psalms. So setting aside psalms one and two that act as this introductory, when you look at the book one of the psalms, only psalms 10 and psalms 33 are without any heading, superscription, telling us who authored them. And then further, every other psalm that bears a heading includes in that heading these words of David. So book one, all the psalms in that collection are by David except for these four anonymous psalms. And then we look at just a couple of manuscripts, but nonetheless, there are a couple of Hebrew manuscripts that combine Psalms 32 and 33, which would mean Psalms 30, Psalm 33 comes under the heading of Psalm 32 of David. And the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation, the old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it does attribute this psalm to David. Now, I don't think we should attribute any kind of significant authority to these, these uh, minority reports as we have them. These, these aren't authoritative uh, documents in, in an absolute sense in any way. But I do believe they testify to this. The saints have long seen a connection between Psalms 32 and 33. And... We'll see why that's important more so as we go along. But as we begin to examine the psalm, something that escapes the eye until you, you study it in depth is that the structure of it is stunning. The psalmist here calls for those who play unto Yahweh to play skillfully. And he doesn't call for them to do anything themselves, which he fails to do as a composer, as a writer, as an author. This psalm is crafted skillfully. 
Now, I don't want to go into too much depth at this point. We'll do a little bit more later on. But normally you don't pay attention to the frame. So I do want to examine it briefly. But it's something like this. Most, not all, but a lot of poetry is like either a shiny lemon or the Millennium Falcon. A shiny lemon of a car. Um, it's, it's a... It looks great on the surface, but if you, you begin to examine the bones, it's a mess. You drive it off the lot and you find out everything underneath is just a, a wreck. And so there's a rhyme sequence, but you find out this poet didn't really know how, he didn't understand any kind of meter, didn't understand any kind of rules of poetry. It's uh, roses are red, violets are blue. Yeah, it rhymes, but uh, it doesn't have a lot of depth and beauty to it. It's pretty simplistic or it's just rough. And so a lot of poetry is like that. It looks good on the surface, but it's the bones are bad. Or it's like the Millennium Falcon. The outside of it is just, uh, well, it's ugly. But uh, as far as the structure, as far as uh, underneath, everything is sound there. But this psalm is both sound and beautiful in both body and frame. So to just draw your attention briefly to the frame, what's often ignored, the psalm is symmetrical. You have an opening, verses 1 through 3, and you have a closing of three verses also, verses 20 through 22. So an opening and closing of both three verses, and in between, the body. And the opening is this call to worship. And the conclusion is an expression of confidence and a plea which are worship. And in between, you have reasons. The body is comprised of reasons for worship. And the reasons move you from this call to the confidence that concludes the psalm. I've borrowed Alan Ross's uh, outline in verses 1 through 3. You have a call to worship. Verses 4 through 19, the body... You have cause for worship. And then in verses 20 through 22, you have a conclusion of worship. That is a conclusion which is worship. So the call to praise. As we launch into this psalm, it's critical that we see that this call to worship is a call for the called to worship. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now all men should praise God as verse 8 makes plain. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. All men should praise God, but only the saints can praise God. And then further, the kind of praise that's being called for in the psalm is not only something that the saints can do, this particular kind of praise is something that only the saints should do. The wicked should praise God, but they shouldn't praise God as though they were the righteous. They shouldn't praise God like the righteous do. I'll put it this way, the Egyptians should not sing and praise God as though they were Israelites. Or the wicked should not rejoice like they are the forgiven, the saints, the redeemed. You see, the wicked man should worship God, but he, the kind of worship that he should offer up immediately 
is the worship of repentance. And until he's offered that up, he should not offer up the kind of worship that the forgiven man does. There's a kind of worship that only the saint should offer up. If he starts praising God for his mercy and grace, he's blaspheming the thing he's speaking of if he doesn't stand inside of it. He's, he's acting as though something is true which is not true of him. Now, here we have five commands in this call to worship. One, shout for joy in Yahweh. Two, give thanks to Yahweh. Three, make melody to him. Four, sing to him a new song. Five, play skillfully. Five commands. And with these five commands, there's one statement. A singular, standout statement that I believe is substantial in understanding what the psalmist is getting at here. Praise befits the upright. It becomes them. It's, it's harmonious with their position. It's the proper accompaniment for the saint. Praise befits the upright. Spurgeon comments, God has an eye to things which are becoming. When saints wear their choral robes, they look fair in the Lord's sight. A harp suits a blood-washed hand. No jewel more ornamental to a holy face than sacred praise. Praise is not comely from unpardoned professional singers. It is like a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. Crooked hearts make crooked music. But the upright are the Lord's delight. Praise is the dress of the saints in heaven. It is meet that they should fit it on below. Many a church platform are filled with the skilled. I'm afraid, though, that it's often the case with that, that they are nothing more than players in multiple senses and not praisers. Sadly, there are tests for those who would be platformed regarding their skill. And as little testing done concerning the heart to get on stage as there was testing to become welcome into the membership of the church to begin with. Only worshipers can lead in worship. The psalmist will give us four reasons why only and specifically the righteous, the upright, can Shout, praise, give thanks, make melodies, sing, and play skillfully. These are four reasons why especially them, only them, can do this. But before we go there, there are four hints why praise especially befits the upright, just within the call to worship itself. First, the command is for the righteous to shout for joy in Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. It's a, it's a translation that you have rendered as Lord. You have rendered as a title. What is the proper name of God that He gave His people to call on Him? Yahweh. Whenever Moses went up on the mountain and pleaded, Show me your glory. Part of the glory that was revealed to Moses was the proclaiming of God's name. Exodus 34, 5-7. through 7. 
Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, when he proclaimed the name, there was a defining of that name, a revealing of that name, a revealing of who God is with that name. The Aaronic priests were instructed to bless the people in this name and thus put God's name on them as a bride bearing now her husband's name. Numbers 6, 22 through 27 Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So the redeemed stand inside of this covenant love of Yahweh. And so it's befitting for them and them alone to shout for joy in Yahweh. And second, this call is for the upright, the righteous, verse 1. The previous psalm made clear who the upright and the righteous were. It begins by telling us, that the blessed of God are those whose transgression is forgiven, their sin is covered against them, Yahweh will count no iniquity, and then that psalm ends by identifying those same persons as the righteous and the upright, calling for them to be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. The righteous are not the self-righteous. They've been counted righteous by their covenant Lord, and thus it's fitting for them to give thanks. Praise, and for no others. And third, they are to give thanks to Yahweh. And while the wicked have many things for which they should give thanks, the content of the psalm is concerned something for which the only, the righteous, the upright, the redeemed, the saints, something that only they can express thanks for. And that relates to where the fourth item takes us. They're called to sing a new song to Yahweh. Whenever Israel was delivered at the Red Sea, Moses not only sang a song, he sang a new song, and he opened it up saying, Exodus 15, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And this is a consistent pattern. God delivers his people. And they respond with a new song. Let's see if you can't hear this in Psalm 41 through 3. I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song into my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. 
The new song that's put into David's mouth is put there by God's delivering him as he cried out to. He freshly experienced the redeeming love of God and the result was a new song was put into his heart. So this psalm is calling for the kind of praise that follows redemption, salvation, deliverance, the covenant love of God. That's the kind of giving thanks that's being called for. That's the kind of shouting for joy in Yahweh that's being spoken of. And this is why it befits the upright and no other. Now, as we get into the body of the psalm, verses 4 and 5 function as a summary for all of the body. You have four reasons of cause for praise. Four four reasons for praise. And all of them are introduced in verses 4 and 5. Shout, give thanks, make melody, sing, play skillfully. Why? For, because, one, the word of Yahweh is upright. Two, all His work is done in faithfulness. Three, He loves righteousness and justice. For the earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. You have two couplets here. And the first couplet concerns two general reasons. Creation and God's government of that creation. We'll call it His providence. So creation and providence. Really broad brush pictures of what God does concerning creation. And then you have two more specific causes for praise given in the second couplet. His justice and His steadfast love. And there's a progression to these four reasons for the upright to praise God. Creation. God's providence concerning creation. His dealings in justice with the wicked. And His dealings in steadfast love with the righteous. Let's look at these as the psalmist further teases them out. First, the saints are to praise God for the word of Yahweh is upright. Verse 4a. And that's teased out in verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 tells us, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. God creates by His sovereign, omnipotent word. His words don't simply carry authority. They carry power. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. We are because He speaks. If He did not speak, we would cease to be. If He didn't speak, we never would be. Indy Wilson writes, Tree, I say, and you know what I mean. You see one in your mind, or glance out your window and remember the much-needed pruning. Tree, God says, and there is one. But he doesn't say the word tree. He says the tree itself. He needs no shortcut. He's not merely calling one into existence as though his voice creates. His voice is its existence. That thing in your yard, that mangy apple or towering spruce, that thing is not the referent of his word. It is his word and its referent. If he were to stop talking, it wouldn't be there. By the breath of his mouth, the heavens came to be. 
we're told. The host of heaven came to be. Spurgeon writes, it's easy, it is as easy for God to create the universe as for man to breathe. Nay, far easier for man breathes not independently, but borrows breath in his nostrils from his maker. We are all just tinkers of trinkets. God alone is creator of all creation. The toddler fumbling with his blocks more closely approximate his architect or construction working father than we collectively as image bearers and imitators all together approximate our creator God. On the second day, he spoke and the heavens were made distinct. And then on the fourth day, he spoke and filled those. Genesis 1.14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And we're told it was so. He spoke and the waters were gathered. <clears throat> on the third day, he said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. You remember God questioned Job? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. In Jeremiah 5, God says to His rebellious people, Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass, though the waves toss, they cannot prevail, though they roar, they cannot pass over it. This creation imagery here evokes a sense of awe and wonder. And thus demands worship, verses 8 and 9. Let all, let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Creator's creation demands the creature's reverence. Romans 1, 20 tells us, that by his, in, that his invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly per perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, such that man is without excuse in his failure to offer up thanks and honor God. But, how does all of this concern Praise, rejoicing, and shouting, and giving thanks in a way that specifically and only concerns the righteous and the upright. If this psalm is Davidic, and that seems very likely, then there's no way that Isaiah could have influenced David's composition of this psalm. 
And what's peculiar then understanding that is seeing how Isaiah uses the same kind of language and brings it to the same kind of conclusion, but in a logical manner, as the flow of this psalm. Isaiah 48 speaks of God repeatedly in terms of, well, it's God speaking there, using creation language, but it's using creation language and metaphors and imagery concerning His providence and His rule over the nations. Specifically, is delivering Israel from Babylon. So Isaiah 48, 12 through 14, is just one example. This runs throughout the whole chapter. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you. So here's God saying, "Whenever whenever I speak, They stand forth. They assemble. And now he's telling them, Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. Israel. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. So this kind of creation language and metaphor is used throughout that chapter to speak in reference to his dealing with Babylon in delivering his people. It's the same direction this psalm goes. The saints are to praise God here, not simply because his word is awesome, but the way it was framed is to praise him for the word of Yahweh is upright. He has spoken, and in his further revelation of his word, he gave commentary that whenever he spoke that, he saw it, and it was very good. And the saints see that, and they add their amen as only they can. It is very good. Praise God befits the upright and they alone for they see that the word of Yahweh is upright, righteous. Second, the saints are to praise God for all His work is done in faithfulness. Verse 4b, it's teased out further in verses 10 through 12. The faithful work of God or His providence is then looked at in verses 10 through 12 from three perspectives. Verse 10, the wicked. Verse 11, God. Verse 12, the righteous. Verse 11, or verse 10, the counsel of the nations is brought to nothing. Their plans are frustrated. What are their plans? Psalm 2 has told you what their plans are. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again and again we've seen throughout Psalm 1 the wicked opposing God's king. 
This is their plan. This is their plotting. This is their scheming. And it's all brought to nothing. Their plan is to try to undo His plan. But as we turn to God, in verse 11, we see how futile this is. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generation. God writes and draws out His plans with a sharpie. And He never has to scribble over. He never needs another sheet of paper. He never need make a creation. He draws them out perfectly and permanently. What is his plan? Psalm 2, again, his plan concerns his king and the king's kingdom. And thus, it concerns the king's people. This plan concerns his heart to all generations. Specifically, all generations of whom? Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. You might think, when you get to verse 12 that the psalmist has left his second reason. All his works are done in faithfulness concerning God's providence, and he's jumped to the fourth reason, his steadfast love for his people. But notice the flow. The counsel of the wicked brought to nothing. Yahweh's plans stand forever. These plans concern his heart to all generations of his people And this is what lets you know we're still thinking of God's plan and providence. Who are these people? They're His chosen. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom He has chosen. This is His plan. Blessed be the God who so blessed us. As Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Give thanks to Yahweh for all His work is done in faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? His plan His heart for all generations to those that He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. All His work is done in faithfulness. And third, the saints are to praise God for He loves righteousness and justice. Verse 5 and verses 13 through 15 work this out. Now in light of God's plan as we just examined it then, His righteousness and justice concern the wicked, those who are trying to overthrow his plans. He looks down and he sees all of all. He sees everything of everyone. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He observes all of all. All, everything concerning everyone he sees. Whenever man united in rebellion against God to make a name for themselves and build a tower up to the heavens, remember how God comments on it? Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. 
Do you hear the insult? The work of all these men to build something to the heavens. And God says, I have to come down to see it. It was insignificant in its attempt to overthrow his plans, but it was unignorable in its rebellion and intent. Psalm 14, 2 through 3, we read, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Saints, let us make melody to Yahweh, for He loves righteousness and justice. Why should that cause us to sing? Because this judgment will mean the full and final salvation of God's elect. Whenever our king will have put all enemies under his feet, and we will forever dwell in the kingdom to behold his face. Psalm 11, 4-7, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain down coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Fourth, the saints are to praise God for verse 16 through 19. They tease out this aspect of verse 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. Now the first part of this final section makes you think that the psalmist is continuing to reflect on the demise of the wicked. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But all of this is a setup for contrast, you see. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So in that previous section, you're told God looks and sees the wicked. And he will bring righteousness and justice. But here you're told that God's eye is on those who fear him. To keep them in a steadfast love. To deliver them. The puzzling thing though about this final reason. Is the way it was stated in verse 5. Is that the steadfast love of Yahweh. Well the earth is full of it. We can understand what the seraphim cry out. In Isaiah 6. Can't we? Holy, holy Holy is Yahweh of hosts. The earth is full of His glory. We can, we can conceive all of earth testifying to the glory of God. Of His power and His wisdom. But can we 
can we really say, could especially the Israelites seeing back then that the earth is full of His covenant love, His unfailing covenant love for His people. The earth, full of it? How is that so? Well, first, it's true then, it's true now, because our covenant Lord works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose, to those who love Him. So, what was happening while David was king in Papua New Guinea, before it even had that name, and among the Native Americans, before they were ever designated as such, what was happening among them was all part of God's plan concerning His faithfulness and steadfast love to His people that He chose before the foundations of the earth. See, because it's, that is true, it would mean, in time, God gathering a host from every tribe, people, language, and tongue. The elect of God from all over the earth being gathered such that, as Habakkuk tells us, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh. As the waters cover the earth. The earth would be filled with the knowledge of the covenant God of His people, Yahweh. As the waters cover the earth. And in John's revelation, we find a heavenly scene anticipating that earthly promise. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. Let me pause. Brief exposition there. What's the opening of the, what's the scroll and opening of the seals? Well, the book of Revelation concerning God's plan at the end unfolds as the seals are broken. His plan. Worthy are you for the unfolding of this plan of the fullness of redemption to come. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And, they, and, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. You've made them a kingdom and you've made them priest. This is a priestly song. It fits. It becomes priest and priest alone. So sing him a new song. Because the earth is full of the covenant love of God. It's full of it, saints. See the world through these eyes. The whole world. Don't despair. Don't be without hope. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. 
the conclusion that you're brought to after these reasons have been given, this cause for praise has been presented for the upright and the righteous to praise their covenant Lord, the conclusion you're brought to is one where the choir breaks out. Did you catch that? Verse 20, our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in Him. Because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. So the choir breaks out now at the end. What do we find on their lips? What are you expecting to find? Well, that's obvious. Praise, shouts, giving thanks. What do we find? We find an expression of confidence, of faith, and a plea related to that very confidence. Our soul waits. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us. Even as we hope in you. This expression of faith and confidence is praise. Faith is an expression of praise. Trust is an expression of praise. It magnifies and glorifies the Lord. Faith expressed is praise. And praise, if it is to be true, must be an expression of Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. No faith, no praise. Which is why praise befits the upright and none others. This psalm as a whole picks up where 32 left off. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And that call to worship was preceded by this statement. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Here we see the chosen of God trusting Yahweh and thus surrounded by His steadfast love. The steadfast love that they hope in And plead for. They look at all these reasons for praise. And they don't simply praise God. They express confidence. Hope. Faith in Him. They trust Him. They wait for Him. Their hearts are glad in Him. This faith that's being expressed in this conclusion. And their plea. Related to that faith. Are not something short of praise. They are praise plus. They are what praise must be. Or praise is not at all. And this is why praise befits. It's proper. It's suitable. It's comely. It's becoming of the saints as it is no other. Because of all the reasons given for praise here. Because they concern the saints directly. Because... It is their God who is upright, faithful, righteous, just, and the God of unfailing, eternal, immutable, steadfast, merciful, gracious covenant love. 
We are surrounded by this covenant love. And you see it's saying that all that God is, all of His attributes, all that He is, He is for us. So shout for joy in Yahweh, O righteous. Give thanks to Yahweh. Sing to Him a new song. And, and will, you not, will you join me? As the choir, expressing verses 20 through 22. Join with me. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him. Because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Holy Father, yes, we plea, let your steadfast love be on us, as we hope in you. Your plan, your works are done in faithfulness. They will not fail. Because the word of Yahweh is upright as well as powerful. Justice will come on the wicked and bring about the full and final deliverance of the upright. Made so by your counting them such in Christ. All praise be to you. In his name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.